Hello, everybody, and welcome to part three of Why I Hate the Church. This is, generally speaking about the church, a podcast production of the Generally Speaking Podcast Network. You can find us on the web at generallyspeakingpodcast.com, and my name is Cliff Ravenscraft. This is part three in the series Why I Hate the Church, and as I have uh, promised, I'm going to encourage you, if you have not heard part one of this podcast, I want to encourage you to just go ahead and stop right now and go back and find uh, episode number or episode number fifteen, I believe it was. Uh, let me check that real quick, uh, which is part number one of this series because I think it's important for you to understand where Cliff is coming from uh, and why he would title uh, a series just and just call it uh, "Why I Hate the Church" because I think that would be a good thing for you to know. So I'm actually pulling it up here, and I'm absolutely incorrect. It is uh, podcast episode number 14 on the Generally Speaking About the Church uh, feed. So go to generallyspeakingpodcast.com. There's a show notes section. Click on About the Church and uh, shoot for number 14 and get part one of this series. Anyway, I am coming to you with my... continued review of this book titled Revolution by George Barna. I've had the opportunity since our last recording to read chapters 1, 2, and 3. And uh, I'm glad I've actually read chapter 3, particularly the very last page, before I came to you about chapters 1 and 2 because uh, it it gave me a little bit of a different perspective on chapter 1. For those of you who are following along in this book with me, uh, this is going to be very familiar to you. I'm going to read some stuff out of the book, um, little excerpts here and there. For those of you who have not purchased the book, this will give you a little idea of of what the book is uh, kind of doing here. Chapter 1 was pretty much, uh, it's it's titled uh, David and Michael. And basically what we have here is a story about two men. And I bet you you can't guess what their names are. Anyway, David is, uh, uh, well, let me tell you a little bit about them. Let me uh, see here. David and Michael. The duo had known each other for more than a decade, initially meeting at church at a barbecue, at a church barbecue, sorry. There were many similarities in their lives. Each had two daughters who were roughly the same age. Each was the CEO of a mid-sized corporation experiencing solid growth. Each got married to a loving and supported wife soon after graduating from college, and both were born-again Christians who had eliminated church life from their busy schedules, albeit very different, uh, I'm sorry, albeit very different subsequent uh, spiritual trajectories. Let's see here. Initially, they took the same identical steps of disengagement, driven out of their longtime church by boredom and the inability to serve in ways that made use of their considerable skills and knowledge. Each man, each man spent some time exploring other churches. After months of honest effort, neither found a ministry that was sufficiently stimulating and having an impact on the surrounding community. David Okay, David, entrepreneurial to a fault, decided to develop his own regimen 
of spiritual practices and activities in order to retain a vibrant spiritual life. Michael, disheartened by his unfulfilled quest, chose to uh, chose a, to call a truce with God and simply get on with his life. Uh, and, of course, without church attendance being a part of it. The story kind of... Uh, they're on a golf course on a Sunday morning. And uh, David is trying to politely encourage and, and uh, in a very non-confrontive way, uh, asking some pretty decent accountability questions of his friend Michael. Now, David has obviously, uh, in this story, been very spiritual-minded. Uh, he's, like the, like the introduction here says, he's, he's developed a very strict um, spiritual regimen of, of um, spiritual practices, if you will, that, that he feels is important. He, he spends time alone with God in prayer, and he's searching through God's Word for insight and wisdom on, and discernment on what steps he should be taking in life. And, uh, you know, the, the thing is, is that he, he seems like he's got a very well-balanced life. Now, um, one of the things that I noticed about this, though, is, is that there was one spot in here where it said that, uh, there, that David's wife and children still attend church regularly, or somewhat regularly, and he just chooses not to go. And, and if anything, that's the only thing I, I, I hear in here that kind of concerns me about David at this point. There were more that concerned me about, about the whole story overall. But, uh, and I'm going to get into that in just a second. But one of the things that, as I read this, just seemed a little odd to me was this idea that, that David seemed to have a spiritual regimen for himself, but it, it really isn't talking a whole lot about, you know, his involvement with his family and including his family in his own, uh, personal relationship with God that he's, that he's got going on as far as the spiritual regimen. I mean, I don't understand why David would not see the value in going to this church building on a regular basis and and yet he sees it you know why isn't he involving his family i guess in some of the um let's say the going down to the soup kitchen and and helping out there and and uh it doesn't talk much about whether or not he's gathering together on a on a consistent basis with other believers in Christ and and uh, together along with his family, there, there are some there are some things that are left untold in this story. And obviously, the story is just to point out that that David is a spiritual minded person that is fully seeking God's will, and uh, and and yet does not attend church. And that's that was the point of this story. So I, I guess I'm looking for more than what really was meant to be there. So. But anyway, um, during the whole story, Michael kind of dodged quite a few questions, and he seemed a little bit burned out, if you will, on on his experience in the church and his lack of finding meaning and purpose there and his inability to, to, to really find a way that he can plug in his own gifts and talents, and he kind of just gave up, if you will, um... But but yet he still gets together with David and they play golf and and they they have this conversation and at the end of it at the end of the story, uh, Barna writes this. He says you probably know people like David and Michael. You might even be like one of them. 
David, you see, is a revolutionary Christian. His life reflects the very in ideas and principles that are characterized... I'm sorry, let me start that one again. His life reflects the very ideas and principles that characterize the life and purpose of Jesus Christ and that advance the kingdom of God, despite the fact that David rarely attends church services. And uh, the book continues to say that he's a typical... He is typical of a new breed of disciples of Jesus Christ. They are not willing to play religious games and aren't interested in being a part of religious community uh, that is not intentionally and aggressively advancing, advancing God's kingdom. They are people who want more of God, much more in their lives. Uh, and they, let's see here, and they are doing whatever it takes to get it. And so, uh, again, it, it's not telling us anything more than, you know, just a couple things that, that he shares in this conversation that he's doing. But uh, hopefully hopefully more is happening there than just his own personal goal of obtaining, you know, a closer walk with God. Anyway, this is where I start to have a problem with this story. It says, Michael, for all his good qualities and wonderful intentions, is a backsliding Christian. A believer who is losing touch with God, the Bible, the community of faith, and his own spiritual responsibilities. You know, as I read this story, and can I just confess something to you? I, I kind of felt a little bit more like Michael in this story than I did David when I read it. Um, and and, and I, I don't know if it's my own personal shame or guilt uh, or if I'm trying to rationalize things but I would call myself anything but a backsliding Christian you know I, I have some wonderful intentions uh, and and yet I don't think one of the things I definitely don't believe is I'm lo- I don't believe I'm losing touch with God um, I don't believe I'm losing touch with the Bible nor do I believe I'm losing touch with the community of faith and Definitely not losing touch with my spiritual responsibilities. But yet, when I read this story, I am more like Michael. I, there are some things in my life right now that, that I don't do that I probably should be doing. You know, and, and, you know, for example, let me give you some examples. Now, I pray on a regular basis. And I've been keeping a pretty decent prayer journal. And, and uh, through podcasting, I'm meeting lots and lots of people. And, and they share all kinds of things that are going on in their lives. And every time I, I get one of those emails where somebody says, you know, I've got a tumor on my neck. And uh, my, my mother and my grandmother passed away in this past year because of cancer. And I've got a one-year-old daughter that I have to take care of. And I'm very concerned. I don't take that lightly, and, and I take that to the Lord immediately in prayer, and, and, and those kind of people out there are coming to me on a regular basis, and so they're, they're, it, this has driven me to prayer more than it ever has in the past. However, I've been more reading books about faith and, and challenging some of the things that I believe and, and how I look upon my faith, uh, and, and I've, I've been encouraged, I've been feeling a pull to read some of these books but yet i've not read god's word on a daily basis in quite some time now some people think that you know you have to read the bible every single day or you need to have a a, a strong strict regimen of 
reading God's word or else you're going to lose touch. And, and I'm just not, I, I just think that that seems a little legalistic to me. And, and where I'm coming from with this is that, you know, the, the, the church, the new church in the, in the, in the new Testament, when we read about the formation of the church, they didn't have the Bible sitting on their desks or at their bedside. You know, they, they went, they heard these letters that Paul wrote to the church in Corinthian, or if perhaps they were in the, if the church in Ephesus and, and they, they heard Paul's letter written to the church in Ephesus, writ, read aloud. And, and the Bible says that they, uh, they, um, in Acts 2.42, they all got together and, uh, uh, they basically dedicated themselves to the apostles teaching. That, that doesn't just say to me that they took and uh, wrote down everything they heard from Paul's letter and they went home and re- read it and studied it for word for word. And What that tells me is they listened and, and heard the heart of what was being spoken to them and they applied that to their lives. They've had discussions about what it means to live in the family of God and, and, and these things are written in their heart, but yet... It, they didn't have a hard copy to read all the time, so I, I just don't understand where you know if if you're not reading the Bible every day that that that's just uh, saying that you're losing touch with God and the Bible. As far as the community of faith, now how can he say that that he's losing touch with the community of faith when when he's meeting with David every other week? And is it possible? It, it doesn't strictly state in here that that he's pretty much cut off all communication with other believers as well. And so, and, and it doesn't really say a whole lot about his spiritual responsibilities, uh, except for the fact that, you know, David talks to Michael about going and serving in a soup kitchen and, and stuff like that and, and helping out in the community and, and things. And, uh, Michael kind of shrugs at that and, and and really doesn't have a whole lot to come back and say well this is what i'm doing but but i'm i'm just hesitant hesitant to call that guy a backsliding christian you know let me let me tell you where i'm coming from here this this story and and if you would have read it yourself you would know that this story is about two men who have just relatively recently stopped attending church uh, because it, 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 they just were not, they were bored out of their minds in this church. And, and it just was, they didn't see any impact that this church was having on the community. And so, um, they basically, they, they quit going. Now, David has a personality, uh, the, the type of personal, t- personality, and, and, and Barney even says he's entrepreneurial to the fault. And so he, he sets up his own spiritual um, regimen of things that he's going to do. And, well, that that's his personality. But Michael, you know, he's burned out as well. But he's not nearly as self-motivated or possibly even self-disciplined. Uh, and so it takes him a while before he might really start feeling the the pressure or call or the conviction of the Holy Spirit to to really answer the call of what he specifically is supposed to do. Perhaps maybe his calling doesn't have anything to do with 
with going to the soup kitchen. Maybe his calling might be podcasting or or who knows it, do you see where i'm coming from here and and yes i'm i'm sitting there thinking to myself or you're thinking to yourself well close talking about himself and i am i just shared with you that that i believe that that i'm very much like this michael and 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 i will tell you that i've been burned out on the church the church has burned me out not not the not the ministry that i was involved in recently and 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 still very much involved in but just the politics of church and the, just hearing the overall politics and the the conflicts that are going on and and to be honest with you more so the conflicts i had over the last 10 years of involvement in the church it's just been really really hard to recover from some of those things and and i'll just be honest with you i i've been less than the perfect christian example to people out there but let me let me tell you why i think that this chapter one really blew me off because i want to i want to read to you that what this says here at the end of chapter one barner writes the united states is home to an increasing number of revolutionaries these people are devout followers of jesus christ who are serious about their faith now here's where it gets good who are constantly worshiping and interacting with God, and whose lives are centered on the belief, on on their belief in Christ, some of them are aligned with congregational churches, but many of them are not. The key to understanding revolutionaries is not what church they attend, or even if they attend. Instead, it's their complete dedication to being thoroughly Christian, by viewing every moment of their life through a spiritual lens and making every decision in light of biblical principles. These are individuals who are determined to glorify God every day through every thought, every word, and every deed in their lives. Now, I want to tell you something. That just seems a little bit too perfect for my good. Um, and, and that's why I said that's how, and that is exactly how chapter one's one ends, that this is what a revolutionary is. And I'm sitting there thinking, okay, I thought I was a revolutionary, but I obviously am falling way too short here because you know what? These people are followers of Jesus Christ who are serious about their faith. I am extremely serious about my faith. I, I am definitely there on that one who are constantly worshiping and interacting with God. Now, constantly, I think that's I think that is a little subjective, but it seems to me that Barna with the rest of his statement means literally without cease, without ceasing. Now, I strive for that, but I want to be honest with you, I'm not there. I worship God sometimes, but sometimes I I neglect to think about God in certain parts of my day or parts of my week. And 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 but I do I do I do worship him not just at weekend celebration services but I worship him throughout the week but but constantly uh, yeah so anyway whose lives are centered on their belief in Christ now my life is centered on my belief in Christ I mean Christ is my worldview I view everything through uh, through my faith um, and then let's see here. So we've got that. Okay. And making every decision in light of biblical principles. 
again, he's saying that this is what a revolutionary does. They they make every decision based upon biblical principles that they've learned. Now, I try to do this. I strive to do this. But I will tell you, sometimes I'm just downright selfish and I forget or I neglect to make the right decision based upon biblical principles. Sometimes I just flat out sin and I fall short of the perfect requirement that some people place on Christians. And and if, if, if this is what's required to be a disciple of Christ, that every decision... Then, then I fall short, and and you know, I'm my goal is to get better at this and better every day. But yeah, I I'm not quite there. These are individuals who are determined to glorify God every day. I I am determined to do that, but I fall short of it. Uh, and I am determined to glorify God with my thoughts, words, and deeds. But again, I while I may be determined to do it, I still struggle with it. And this book, this chapter one does not talk about the struggle that revolutionaries uh, go through to to get to those points. And and none of them are perfect. And and, and, and so when I read this, I'm like, man, I don't even know if I want to continue reading because this, this talks about a perfect group of people. I mean, no wonder these people wouldn't want to be in a church. They're too perfect for church. And that's the, that's the feeling that I got when I read this. And that's not why I don't like the church. I, I don't hate the church because I'm perfect and it's not. I hate the church because I'm not perfect and I know the church is not perfect. But sometimes the church just downright does mean things to people. Do you see where I'm coming from? My, my, my dislike of the, the church is the treatment of the people sometimes by its principles and by its own traditions sometimes gets in the way and sometimes the attitudes of people within the church um which are sometimes looked upon as being pious and very good uh those things can just be so detrimental uh i'm going to tell you about a story about a man who went to a church in texas and you've probably heard this if, if you're a christian you've probably heard this joke many times but this guy walks into this church service uh, in Texas, and he wears his blue jeans and his and his cowboy hat, and uh, he looks a little ragged. If you if you understand what I mean, and uh, everybody else in the church that he he walks into, they all they're all dressed in fine suits, and and they everybody just looks their best. Well, after the service was over, the the pastor of the church was. Uh, shaking people's hands as they walk out the door, and as this man went up to the pastor, the pastor said, "Hey, it was really great to have you, have you uh, join us this weekend here at our, our church service, and and we want to invite you to come back, but but you may want to consider uh, how you're dressed, and and you know, and 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 you might want to consider dressing a, a little bit more appropriately, and and do, with due respect to God and His house, because." Uh, you know, it's just not right. And he goes, I want you to pray about that before you come back next weekend. Well, anyway, the next weekend rolled around and the guy dressed uh, pretty much exactly like he was the week before. May even have been the same clothes for all we know. And uh, after the church service, the pastor's back to the church again. And he says, well, we're glad you're back. But, uh, you know, had have you, you're wearing the same clothes. Is there's I thought I had uh, told you maybe you want to 
pray and talk to God about, you know, the kind of clothes you should wear. And, he's, and the man looks at the, pre, the preacher or pastor and says, you know, um, pastor, I talked to God about it. And I asked him what I should wear when I walk into your church. And, and God replied, well, I don't know. And I said, what do you mean, God, you don't know? He goes, well, I've never been there. And so, uh, yeah, anyway, you get the point. Anyway, uh, chapter two, uh, it's called The Revolutionary Age. As far as I'm concerned, there's not a whole lot in this chapter, except to say that there are a lot of people that are experiencing this revolutionary idea. Um, There's a little bit on 14 and 15 that I can read to you. Uh, Let me see here. Many revolutionaries have been active in good churches that have biblical preaching, people coming to Christ, and being baptized. A full roster of interesting classes and programs, and a congregation packed with nice people. There is nothing overtly wrong with anything taking place at such churches, but revolutionaries innately realize that it is just not enough to go with the flow. The experience provided through their church, although better than average, still seems flat. They are seeking a faith experience that is more robust and awe-inspiring, a spiritual journey that prioritizes transformation at every turn something worthy of the creator whom their faith reflects they are seeking the spark provided by a commitment to true revolution in thinking behavior and experience where the settle, where settling for what is merely good and above average is defeat faced with an abundance of options revolutionaries make their decisions with great care knowing that each choice matters to god now that's pretty much the only good content that came out of chapter two in my own personal opinion. But uh, I want to tell you real quick that that while this title of this series is Why I Hate the Church, uh, I want to tell you that I'm involved in a ministry that I love very much, and it's called Reality. And it is a it is it is very much. And now that I'm no longer on the leadership team and not speaking for the leadership team, I want to tell you. Uh, that my that the ministry that I've been involved in these last five years is technically in, in, in all intents and purposes, it is really a church within a much larger church. And what's odd is this larger church we have uh, I think our larger church runs on the weekend attendance about 4,200 people on the weekends. Uh, and some of you are like just about ready to fall over. Uh, it's, it's what we would call a mega church. In our area, it's it, it, it's definitely not the largest church out there, but uh, over four thousand people come into our what five different worship services that we have, and uh, our ministry, the one that I'm involved in, is about three hundred people, and um, we are we have our own worship service, and we're a we're what we call a cell ministry, and we're actually a cell church within this traditional church, and we don't. Now, the traditional church, the big church that we're a part of, it's called uh, First Church of Christ, Burlington First Church of Christ. And um, they have Sunday school classes. They have senior adult ministry. They have uh, they have a ministry for everything, a program for everything. And we don't take part in those for the most part. Uh, if you're a part of reality, your number one encouragement is to be involved in a small group relationship with other believers 
that meets inside each other's homes on a weekly basis. Now, you can go into our, uh, generally speaking, about the church feed and, and just look and find the one that says, what is a cell church? And uh, it explains in detail what I'm talking about. So I want to tell you, as I'm recording this, I love the ministry I'm involved in. And as far as I'm concerned, it's it's very much, it's above average. And I will tell you that, that we are a bunch of revolutionaries as much as this book talks about revolutionaries. But we do very much attend the weekend. We do have a weekend worship, but that's the only thing we do at that building. And to be honest with you, it's it's not even nearly the highlight of my week or my spiritual life. In fact, I will tell you that, that the least thing that I enjoy most as a Christian is going to church on the weekend to worship. Uh, and, and that's because I enjoy worshiping uh, it, without it being the same and boring every weekend. Uh, and that has nothing to do with the, the worship leader and the worship band that we have. Uh, but it's very much the same songs over and over again. Uh, and the songs are sometimes, you know, they're, they're written, they're written in such a way that we're singing about God instead of singing to God. And, um, you know, and, 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 and you can't please everybody. And so I understand that. Um, and I will tell you that, that our pastor, he can preach some very wonderful sermons, and, and that, I, that this is actually something I do enjoy from time to time. There's a great sermon that, that really sheds some light uh, of God's word on some subjects. And, and uh, yeah, it, it, there are some great things. But I tell you, it's still, it's, it's nowhere near the highlight of my week. If anything, out of the worship services or celebration services that we have, uh, the celebrations, I will tell you the best thing about Sunday mornings is getting together afterwards and finding out who we're going to have lunch with and go and, and enjoy the company in the favor of the people. Because I'll tell you what, there's more worship for me that happens uh, corporately with other believers at lunchtime than there is while I'm staring at the back of their heads. Uh, we get together and we're talking about what's going on in our lives. Sometimes we'll pray together. Sometimes we'll just just enjoy each other's company and we'll we'll praise God for all the great things. And it, yeah, there's there's more worship, corporate worship, ha- worship happening at some of the places we go to for lunch than than for me personally that takes place at that celebration service, if you know what I mean. Chapter 3, what does God expect? Now, I don't have a lot of notes written down, so I'm going to just read you some things I have underlined here. We must be very careful how we critique another person's spiritual journey. If someone's path conforms to biblical guidelines, even though it may stray from church traditions, cultural expectations, or our personal comfort zone, then we must accept the possibility that God may be working through him or her in a manner that is different from how he is working through us, or perhaps different from the ways that he has previously than we have previously seen or experienced in his leading. And I will definitely agree with that. One of the things that I am certainly facing on a regular basis is the fact that I spend so much time podcasting and I don't spend a lot of time uh, 
going to packing parties where ministries are packing bags. I don't spend nearly the amount of time doing service-related projects that I used to very much be a part of. Uh, anytime something came up, they would say, hey, do we want to go together as a cell group and go and do this, this, and this, and this on the weekends? And I finally got to the point where I had to start saying no to those because I wanted to do some podcasting. Now, I will tell you, some people think, well, Cliff, you're, that, that's your hobby, you know, you, and, and for me, no, this is not a hobby. It is a hobby. But no, this is much more. This, For me, this is ministry. What I'm doing here, obviously this podcast specifically is ministry. But no, I'm talking about my crazy life, just sharing just stuff about my life on a daily basis. That's ministry. And, 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 I, and I, th- I see it as, as, as much ministry as this podcast here. And not to mention the Lost podcast where we very rarely go into any issues of faith whatsoever. It's just us talking about a television show we like. But no, it's very much ministry for me, and 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 uh, some people just may not understand that. But but I I believe that people should not look and say, hey, Cliff's not doing this, this or this, and he's spending a lot of time doing this, and and perhaps something might be wrong, and and he missed church two weeks ago, and he's doing a podcast series titled "Why I Hate the Church." You know what's going on in Cliff's life. Uh, you know, I don't know if people are really saying that, but I'm, I'm sure some people are. I, I, I'd have to believe that some people are. But I've come to the point where that it doesn't bother me anymore. I believe I'm doing what, what God has called me to do, and, and I really believe that that's what's most important. And, and perhaps that's what makes me a revolutionary. And I, I thought that's why I thought I was a revolutionary until I read chapter one, and which made me think that a revolutionary is perfect and that he does all those things that we read all the time. And anyway, um, let's see here. Do, do, do. Oh, one of the things that it talks about in here is that uh, the there were some Bible verses about what the Bible says is expected from God and what the church was like early on. And then um, let me read to you one of these passages and it's uh let's see here i think it's 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 from acts and there's a couple different spots i guess it's taken from it it's uh acts 5 17 through 18 27 through 29 and then 40 through 42 it says the high priest and his officials who were sadducees were filled with jealousy they arrested the apostles and put them in jail then they brought the apostles before the high council where the high priest confronted them didn't we tell you to never again teach in this man's name? He demanded. But Peter and the apostles replied, We must obey God rather than any human authority. The council called the apostles and had them flogged. Called in the apostles and had them flogged. Then they ordered them to never again speak in the name of Jesus, and then they let him go. The apostles left, after being flogged, by the way, the high council rejoicing that God had counted them worthy to suffer disgrace for the name of Jesus. And every day in the temple courts and from house to house, they continued to teach and preach this message, Jesus is the Messiah. Now, let me read to you what Barna wrote. He says, wow, I would love to be involved in a ministry like that, wouldn't you? And the question kind of threw me off because... 
for for the part that now there were two other examples of scripture that he gave and the other two yes i would love to be able to do the acts 2 42 through 47 sitting together in glad and sincere hearts praising god for all the wonderful things he's doing where people were uh doing wonderful things with one another it, it was just amazing but when it comes down to this being flogged i i don't know that I would enjoy that or that I would love to be a part of that. And I, you know, I'm glad that I've never been flogged for my faith, but I would say that, you know, whether or not I would, I would be able to rejoice in that time. I don't think I would ever know unless I'm, I'm faced with that situation. And I praise God every day that I live in a country where I can record openly on this podcast about my faith and I can actually even question the church and and not be put to death as a result of it. So anyway, uh, continuing on in this chapter three, it says, what made the early church, let's see here, what made the early church, which I believe God designed to be our role model. Okay, so he's talking about the fact that he believes God designed the early church or the one we read about in the books of Acts, book of Acts to be our role model. He says, what made the early church compelling and life-changing uh let's identify some attributes that made the first church uh, made the very first church so attractive and effective if you studied the if you study these passages and categorize their content you will find that the church was characterized by seven core passages now first of all i want to say that the early church was not perfect either uh, and all you have to do is read First Corinthians and some of the other things, especially the the seven letters to the seven churches, uh, and some of the things that Jesus had uh, to say about the early churches. So whether or not it was supposed to be an example for us, I don't know. Uh, but anyway, let's let's take a look at uh, some of the things here. Uh, the seven passage is intimate worship. Now, one of the things he says here is every believer was expected to worship God every day. And I read those scriptures, and I've read the scriptures many times. I've read the entire New Testament on, on numerous times. And I never, I mean, it, I have a problem with the word was expected to, as in a legalistic requirement. Because that's what the Pharisees and the Sadducees were all about. You know, this legalism. It's not that they, I don't think every believer was expected to worship God. I mean, obviously that's what God desires, but expected to, I mean, it's as if you don't do it, you're going to be in trouble. Uh, I think it should be more like, you know, they, every believer was so in love with God that they worshiped him every day. That's more the way that I think I would write that sentence. And he says, uh, one of the things he says, while they worshiped God every day, they did not require a worship service. And I so, 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 so agree with that. Um, however, I will say that they did get together in, in large groups on purpose in temple courts and in other public places uh, for the purpose of, of gathering together corporately to worship. Uh, so that that's one of the passions of a revolutionary is intimate worship. Next one is faith-based conversations. Um, let's see here. He says, just as Jesus was intractable in his pursuit of us, we are called upon to share his love with those who have not yet understood it or embraced it. 
it is natural to talk about uh, and promote the things that excite us. Nothing should excite us more than the realization that God himself loves us, wants an intimate relationship with us, and allows us to invite others into that sacred and priceless relationship with him. Now, I'm going to tell you a couple things about my thoughts on, on this little part of this book here. Um, we have been called to share his love. Unfortunately, many people have equated with this idea of getting excited and inviting others to take part in this. They've equated that with invite my friends to come to church with me. Or uh, they've equated that with uh, I, I should go knocking door to door or I should stand on the corner of a street and preach at people who pass by who don't quite live according to God's law. And no, I don't believe that. But yes, we should be compelled to share his love. And I mean unconditional love. When it says his love, I'm thinking his unconditional love, his love that loved homosexuals regardless of of where they were, his love that loved a prostitute uh, while she was caught in the act, uh, who his love who loved a Samaritan woman who had been married many times and then has living has been living with a man that she's not currently married to. I mean, that's the kind of love that I see example, exemplified in Christ. And my problem with the church is when Christians do not extend his love to people. And then, of course, there's this idea that nothing should excite us more. And I will agree, nothing should. But can I confess to you that there are many things that excite me more from time to time? I get so caught up and frustrated at myself sometimes that, that God becomes second fiddle. And, and, and I want to say that I don't believe I'm a backsliding Christian, but I've just not. There, there have been times when nothing other than God could satisfy or quench my soul. But sometimes I, I, I get pure enjoyment out of other things, and, and God is not in the first forethought of my mind. And so... Anyway, faith-based conversations, though, is, is, is the, when the opportunity comes to have conversations and have relationships with people, that God becomes a part of that conversation, or faith does. And uh, one of the things that, some, that this author wrote is they, you know, they, they, um, they're excited when the opportunity to discuss the source of their power and joy-filled perspective that they have towards God and life well, some I want to say that some Christians look for that opportunity and try to force those opportunities too often when if they would just take the time and invest in people's lives that it would happen more naturally and, and would not be so um, confrontational, if you will. I, I know somebody that's pretty close to me, and I won't say who it is, uh, but they came to me and says, Hey, can you... Uh, make a CD of this song and I'm like well what is it it's a Johnny Cash song God's gonna cut you down and I'm like okay sure I can make you that CD and uh, and she said great because I want to give it to so and so because I think he really needs to hear that if he doesn't change his life God's gonna cut him down I'm like oh my gosh no I and, and I have not made that CD by the way uh, faith-based conversations I, I I think that it should just be a naturally occurring thing. And, and sometimes if the Holy Spirit leads and urges you to, to speak up, then by all means. But sometimes I think if the Holy Spirit isn't leading you to say something and you feel like you need to force a conversation because you feel guilty because you haven't really 
done a whole lot, had the ability to to share God's word with people. Well, sometimes, let's just say don't force it. it it's so unnatural. What's the third passion of revolutionaries? Intentional spiritual growth. Uh, believers exhibited a remarkable attitude toward life and people and acknowledged the presence of the supernatural in their everyday adventures. They placed their faith at the center of their lives and derived their sense of meaning, purpose, and direction from their connection to God and His commands. One of the things I do believe in is that spiritual growth just doesn't just happen. You have to be intentional about it. Uh, it, it's kind of like training for a marathon. You can't go and run for 26.2 miles just because you say to yourself, I'm going to do that. Uh, it, it will never happen. You must train. You must start out by running a mile. And you must tr- you must work yourself up to where eventually after uh, several weeks or even months, you're running 10 miles. And and even then, you got to get to where you can pretty much run at least 20 miles before you even go for for the marathon because I will tell you what if you haven't been training for a marathon you won't make it past the first five miles it just won't happen so I believe that you have to be intentional about spiritual growth and when I say intentional I don't mean legalistic don't sit there and say I'm going to read a chapter of the Bible every single day and that way if you forget a day or something happens and you don't do it you feel awful um, one of the best things I ever heard is don't try to grow spiritually, train to grow spiritually. And, and what that means is, you know, if you're just trying, you're going to fit, you're setting yourself up for failure. What you want to do is you want to train. You want to say, okay, instead of saying, I'm going to, I'm going to do this every single day. I want to try, I'm going to train myself. I'm going to, I'm going to set aside th- two to three days this week to really do this devotion and and to to really focus on this spiritual discipline and and if it doesn't happen well by all means don't give up you know but if you set yourself up to say i'm going to just jump right into this and i'm going to start doing this every day and i'm going to wake up at 4 a.m i will tell you that you will get burned out and you'll eventually get to the point where you're just doing it because you think you should do it and because you made a commitment to do it and you just won't benefit from it spiritually but you do need to be intentional and you do need to make decisions to do things. And I think that's important. Servanthood. Um, the early church fostered the notion that serving other people was the best men- means of demonstrating the example uh, that Jesus had set for them. Like Christ, they lived to serve rather than being served. Servanthood, a passion of a that is a passion of a revolutionary, and, and I believe that, and and I think that servanthood means not only just giving of yourself and your time, but servanthood means that you're you're not always asking what am I getting out of this. Servanthood could be simply calling somebody on the phone and and spending the next two hours just encouraging them or talking to them or. Maybe in taking them out to lunch or dinner, inviting them over for dinner and and just really listening to what's going on, uh, what they want to share. And, and instead of taking up all the conversation like Cliff does because he likes to talk all the time. I believe Christians should, should always have a mindset that says, listen, how can I help others rather than always expecting how can they help me? 
And then another passion is resource investment. It says the first Christians uh, defined communal living through their sacrifice, sacrificial sharing of everything they had. Note that the scriptures specifically tell us that they shared everything with those in need and that they used the ver- variety of resources at their disposal. Money, food, clothing, housing, relationships, influence, skills, time, and they did all this for the benefit of all the believers. Two questions here. Why why such the focus on believers? What about the non-believers? That's something that, that has always puzzled me. In the new church, they took up offerings, but they, they took it up for those who were in the fellowship. Uh, so that's that's a question. That's something that I, I should, should probably look into a little more. But also, this idea of communal lit- living, I tell you, this is probably one of the biggest stru- struggles in our North American culture, and that is because we are so individualistic and we have such a materialistic view of everything and ownership of things. And and when I hear you know the messages out there that says that when we become a follower of Christ that that we basically agree that that everything we have belongs to him and it's not our own but i very seldom see any christian even the best of christians live out this principle in the north american culture and if you know of somebody that you think exemplifies this i'd love to hear about that individual and and stuff because i just I still see this as being probably one of the most difficult principles to live out in the life of somebody who lives here in in the North American culture that we live in. Uh, Another passion of revolutionaries, spiritual friendships. The church was all about relationships. The friendships that they formed provided not only encouragement, but also loving accountability for spiritual integrity. I will tell you that this is my number one strong suit this is most the most important thing in my faith journey is spiritual friendships and this is getting together for accountability and encouragement with a fellow believer in christ my best friend on this earth is his name is robert johnson uh he he does a podcast with me right now called net junk and uh which you can find at generallyspeakingpodcast.com, by the way. But anyway, um, oh my gosh, did I just throw a shameless plug into this, this Generally Speaking About the Church podcast? Yes, I did. Anyway, Robert and I have been doing prayer partnership for years now. He lives in Florida, and every week we get together and and we, we share what's going on in our personal life, and sometimes we share some very intimate details of thoughts and, and struggles and issues that we have, and and we pray and encourage one another pray for one another we encourage one another it is just it has become something that has really kept me going through some of the most difficult times and has kept my focus on god through some of the greatest times when when i'm very much focused on myself um i have accountability friendships with with my pastor and and with other people in my ministry a guy named uh Patrick Lewis, he and I get together every three weeks and and we have some of the most amazing conversations, amazing, encouraging conversations. And and it's energizing. And sometimes I'll just share some of the struggles and, and some of the painful issues that go through my mind from time to time. And and I'll tell you, if it weren't for these these 
spiritual friendships, these, these friendships that I, these strong relationships that I have with other fellow believers in Christ, I would not be able to be a man of God. There is no question in my mind, and that's why I think it's so important for me to also be in regular fellowship with a, a small group of young believers, uh, of, not young believers, I'm sorry, a small group of uh believers in Christ on a, on a weekly basis that come into my home and, and, and very much are a part of my life on a regular basis. And then family faith is the last passion that's mentioned here. It says, Christian families taught the ways of God in their homes every day in the early church. Parents were expected to model a spirit, spirit-led lifestyle for their children, and families were to make their home a sanctuary for God. The home was the early church. It was only supplemented by larger gatherings in the temple and in else, elsewhere in public. But these, these public places never replaced what took place in the homes of believers. If you look through the book of Acts, everywhere you see the church gathered or talked about it says they met together publicly and from house to house. In fact, it says, And Chloe and the church that meets in her house... And it says, Priscilla and Aquila greet you in the Lord and the church that meets in their house. It says here, it is the persistent exercise of these seven passions that makes revolutionaries just what their name implies. Now, this is what saved chapter one for me. George Barna then wrote, they are not perfect people and they are not always the best example of genuine Christian behavior, but they are obsessed with becoming just that. I agree. I am not a perfect person. I am not always the best example of a genuine of genuine Christian behavior, but I am obsessed with trying my best and training to be better, to be a better person. I don't think I'll ever be perfect, but I definitely want to exhibit a greater example to the people who look at me and see my lifestyle. One of the most important lessons I've learned studying the words of Jesus, this is from the author, is that he loved fruit, not the kind you pick off trees or vines, but the kind that's evident in the life of a person who has, whom he has changed. He made very clear that the proof of people's faith is not in the information that they know or how, or the religious gatherings they attend, but in the way that they integrate what they know and believe into everyday practices. I couldn't agree more. It's not so much do you read the Word of God every single day or have you what have you read in God's Word in this past week that's changed your mind or, or the way you think about things. No, it's... What have you what have you integrated from God's word that you know God's word is saying and how it speaks to where you're at today? How is that changing your everyday practices? Barna continues, the hallmarks of a, of the church that Jesus died for are clear. Based on scripture, your profession of faith in Christ must be supported by a lifestyle that provides irrefutable evidence that your complete devotion is to Jesus. The Lord encountered numerous people during his earthly tenure who could quote scripture or pretend that they knew and loved him, 
but his reaction to them was always the same, show me the fruit. Revolutionaries are Christ's followers who refuse to make excuses for their failings. Instead, they address, they address and overcome those inadequacies. Jesus did not die on the cross to fill church auditoriums, to enable magnificent church campuses to be funded, or to motivate people to implement in innovative programs. He died because he loves you and me. He wants an everlasting relationship with us, and he expects that connection to be so all-consuming that we become wholly transformed. And, and you know... It says, does life get so complicated that it's difficult for you to juggle everything and remain Christ-like? Then one of the things that the author says is that we must consider simplifying our life. And then let me finish with this. Is society dragging you in the opposite direction from where Jesus calls you? Then acknowledge that your life is part of a spiritual war between God and Satan. Declare your side and get on with it. Admit that you are better off fighting the good fight and suffering on earth for the cause of Christ than whining or than winning the world but losing your soul for eternity. Get used to the fact that your life is lived in the context of warfare. Every breath you take is an act of war. To survive and thrive in the midst of the spiritual battle in which you live, seek faith seek a faith con- I'm sorry. To survive and thrive in the midst of the spiritual battle in which you live, seek a faith context and experience that will enhance your capacity to be Christ-like. This mission demands single-minded a single no. This mission demands single-minded commitment and a disregard for all the criticisms of those who lack the same dedication to the cause of Christ. You answer to only one commander in chief and only one will give you an only one let's see and only you will give an explanation for your choices do whatever you have to do to prove that you fear god that you love him that you serve him and yes you live only for him this is the commitment of a revolutionary that's my review of chapters one, two, and three, and uh, chapter number four, which we'll go into in our next uh, part four of this series, is how is the local church doing? And uh, we'll see how that goes. Anyway, I want to close this out with a word of prayer. Will you join me? Father, we come before you and uh, just want to thank you and give you praise for the people out there that you've called to be more like you and who are listening, who are not satisfied with just playing church or getting involved in programs to make us feel better, people who are not satisfied with uh, the legalistic requirements that we place upon ourselves that make us feel guilty when we fall short of reading God's word, reading your word for 25 minutes every day or an hour every day. And Lord, I... I'm sorry for the fact that I'm not perfect. I'm sorry for the fact that sometimes you're not the most exciting thing that I allow other things to get to excite me more. I, I apologize, Lord, and, and I confess that, that sometimes I'm not the best example of Christian behavior. Lord, I, I, want, to be, I want to be more. I want to be more. I struggle to be more. 
I think I'm sometimes more like Michael than I am David in this story in chapter 1. But Lord God, I don't feel that Michael is a backsliding Christian like Barna says. And I don't feel like I'm a backsliding Christian, Lord. And I don't think that everybody that's listening to this that shares in the struggles that I've shared is a backsliding Christian. I think that, Lord, we, many of us have been burned out by, by the established traditions that, that the church has perpetuated throughout the centuries. And, and Lord, I just pray that you will help us to overcome those things and help us to seek to please you and not man. Help us to, to seek your will for our lives and transform our lives day by day that we would be more like you. Lord, I thank you for this series, and I thank you for this podcasting. I thank you for the ministry that I'm involved in, Lord. I pray that you will continue to bless this ministry financially through the through the gifts and donations of those who have been so generous. Uh, I pray that, that I will be able to continually focus on, on, on this. And Lord, if you so call me to this one day that perhaps I will be able to podcast full time and I don't know if that's within the plans or not, but I pray for wisdom and discernment in that. I pray for those who are listening to this who who are not Christian, Lord. I lift them up to you, and I just pray that they would see that that the example of hypocrisy that sometimes they're faced with, that's not exactly what, what you have called people to, and that's not what your church with a capital C is about. Lord God, I just pray for those people to see your light, to see your hope, and to experience and feel your love. That's the most important thing, is that we love one another. And not just each other as believers in Christ, but we love all people, God. The way that Jesus, you did, unaccept, we don't have any conditions. Unconditionally, we will love people, God. Help me to do that. Help me to continue to love people. Help me to invest in people's lives. Lord, I love you. I give you praise. I give you praise. Thank you, God. Amen.